49, if you'll um, open there. Genesis 49, if you're using one of the Pew Bibles, it's on page 79. This is the text of Jacob, Genesis 49. This is the text of Jacob um, calling together his sons and his prophecy specifically concerning Judah. So I'm going to start in verse 8. Genesis 49, starting in verse 8. Judah, you are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice choice vine, he washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Dear Lord, we thank you for this time that we can come and and learn of you. And we pray, Lord, that you would speak to us. We pray for Pastor Paul as he comes that you would give him uh, great passion for your word, for your word that he has studied, that as he brings what you have laid upon his heart, Lord, I pray that we would hear from you and not from him, that you would become more and he would become less, but that you would guide him with your words. So use him for your glory and spend him this morning that we may all benefit by learning and drawing closer to you. We pray that you would change our lives today, Lord. So use this time for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. Um, we did Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a phrase that we will run into a lot as we go through the Old Testament. We did that last week. And we're going to skip over the life of Jacob, um, not because I don't like the guy, although I don't. I mean, he's not the, he's not the nicest of, of guys, is he? You ever read about Jacob? You know, he's a supplanter, he's a deceiver. I mean, he's just not much to the guy at all. But at the end of his life, you know, he, uh, you know, he, he gets it. At the end of, the, of his life, he um, shows some uh, true character. And so we're going to look at that. We're going to look at his last words, well, nearly his last words. This is Jacob who is speaking over his sons. His sons, of course, will represent the next phase of the covenant that God initially made with Abraham. That is, the tribes of Israel will come from the sons of Jacob and form themselves into 
a, uh, a nation, as we will see in the book of Exodus, that will be called after their grandfather, who is Jacob. It's Jacob. Sorry, I, I, I was wondering whether to ask you that question. But Jacob, Jacob would be the grandfather of the, of, uh, the tribes of Israel, as it were, as they would, you know, develop from the sons of, of uh, his sons. So, um, here we are, we're at the end of the book of Genesis. We have, unfortunately, also skipped over the life of Joseph, who's a much better character than Jacob. And he's an important uh, person in and of himself. That's because we're looking at the oaths of God in this series, although I think a series on the life of Joseph at some point would be a great idea. Joseph, though, I must say, before we look at Judah, Joseph got the right of the firstborn. Judah is uh, predicted here by Jacob to be the royal tribe, and we will see that. But in a rather strange turn of circumstances, he, is, he does not have the right of the firstborn. That right actually goes to Joseph. Okay, we see that in the previous chapter, in chapter 48, and we see it repeated in First Chronicles chapter 5, uh, where it's made explicit. But this, this prediction, this particular message, concerns the last days of the people of Israel and the tribes of Israel. Look at Genesis 49 and verse 1. Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Do you see that? In the last days. This makes Jacob a prophet. And this is a very important prophecy that he's going to utter here, particularly the part that we're going to explore this morning, which concerns the tribe of Judah. Of course, who comes from the tribe of Judah? Jesus Christ and, of course, David before him, King David. So Jesus Christ will eventually arise out of the tribe of Judah. We're not going to go through the whole of chapter 49. I'm glad, you know, you're probably glad that we're not going to do that. Uh, there's a lot of, of detail in there. But we do need to examine quite closely verses 8 through 10, even though I had Steve read the whole prophecy, which went to verse 12. Um, calling your attention to verses 11 and, uh, and uh, 12, Let me just fill in some details here for you. It talks about Judah binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. That's that's the Hebrew parallelism. Okay, it's just a way of of writing poetry in the ancient world. It means the same thing. He washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes, which, of course, again, is the same thing. What does that mean? Well, poetically, 
If you tie your donkey to a vine, it means that you own the vine. Because what's the donkey going to do? Start eating. Okay? Now, if the vine is not your vine, you don't tie the donkey to it. Okay? Because the owner's going to be upset. So the idea here is one of wealth. Do you see? Wealth. And then it speaks about his garments, washing his garments in wine, his clothes in the blood of grapes. That also speaks of, of wealth. It's like burning banknotes in a sense. Do you see? Burning dollar notes. Like why would you do that unless you've ruined the, the, the thing? It also, though, alludes to something else that we're going to encounter when we go to the book of Isaiah, or Isaiah, eventually, which speaks about the returning Christ who comes as a man of war and crushes the armies that come against him at Armageddon, where it speaks about, um, and and this is the Bible, the blood coming up to the garments of the horses and and splashing his garments too. And there's an allusion certainly to that in this passage. And then it talks about his eyes and his teeth in verse 12. (laughs) Okay? Well, his eyes darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. That means he's healthy. It means he's very healthy. Do you see? That's the idea. So, having covered that, Let's look at the main part of what Jacob has to say. Judah, verse 8. You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. This passage here concerns Judah, as it were, pictured as a warrior coming back after battle and his brothers praising him, his brothers surrounding him and also bowing down to him. That's the first uh, picture that we have there. But also, of course, prophetically, because David and the line of David, all the line of kings, will come from Judah, um, it speaks about the Davidic dynasty, Yes, that we read of in the Old Testament, which is carried on by Jesus Christ, who is the rightful heir of the throne of David. Now, when will Jesus take up this throne? When will he uh, become the king? Well, that's something that we will look at uh, later on in this passage. But certainly, that means that the tribes who all came and recognized David as the king of Israel, they bowed down to him. They did obeisance to him, and they certainly will do the same thing when Jesus returns. So, Jesus here is pictured as the most prominent of the tribes, of Judah, sorry, as the most prominent of the tribes of Israel, And, of course, the reason here is going to be given in verses uh, 9 and 10. Looking, therefore, at verse 9, Judah is described 
here in the New King James as a lion's whelp, which doesn't sound very impressive. But, you know, whelp. But the idea is a a young lion. He's grown, okay, he's not a baby lion. And baby lions are all cute, aren't they? I mean, they grow into, you know, things that are going to eat you. But baby lions are really cute. It's not talking about a, a baby lion like that, okay? It's talking about a grown lion that is young and that has just eaten, has just killed its antelope or whatever beastie it's, uh, it's devoured and is now lying down. And Judah is talked about like that. He bows down, it says. He lies down as a lion. As a lion, who shall rouse him? In other words, there's a fear element, do you see, that Jacob is predicting around Judah, and particularly around a certain personage who comes from Judah. Now, when will this person come from Judah, this this lion? In the last days. The last days. Or the latter days. This, therefore, must mean that it's speaking about the Lord Jesus. Is it speaking about the Lord Jesus in his first coming? Well, certainly, uh, you don't see a lot of people afraid of Jesus at his first coming, backing away because, oh, there's a lion there. I better skirt round this part, yes? Don't wake him, don't rouse him. Now, there was plenty of people in the time of Jesus' life here on earth who had no difficulty in rousing him and giving him a hard time at all. So it can't be talking about Jesus in his first coming, do you see? He's the Lamb of God in his first coming. In his second coming, the book of Revelation chapter 5 and verse 5 calls him the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Second coming, last days. And that's what we're speaking about here. This is what Jacob, who is speaking this approximately 1,800 years before the time of Christ, so this is 3,800 years or so ago. God's in no rush. This is what he's talking about. So our attention, therefore, needs to be fixed on the second coming of Christ predominantly. doesn't mean that we need to skip what Jesus did at the first coming. But one thing that's interesting about the predictions about Jesus that we find in the book of Genesis, particularly in chapter 3 and verse 15, where he's called the woman's seed, who's going to prevail over the serpent, yes? And then this particular prediction, these are the two main uh, messianic predictions in the book of Genesis. The key things are that, not that he is the savior of mankind, but that he is the, uh, as it were, the owner of this world, the ruler, the coming king. 
That's the key thing. So Messiah, Christ, is introduced in the book of Genesis as a coming ruler. And that is important because, of course, Genesis being the first book of the Bible, the first book that Moses wrote, a book that kind of sets the scene for the rest of Earth's history, presents him in that fashion. And so, as the coming ruler of the world, this is how we should look at Jesus. This is how we should, uh, this should be our first impression of Jesus as a ruler. When we can see him as the ruler, as the rightful king of the world, then we can look at Calvary and become all the more amazed at what happened to him. But that later. He is described here as a lion, a young lion. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? There is another passage, there's another place here where this part of the prophecy and also what's coming about the scepter in verse 10 is is directly quoted. And it's quoted by a false prophet. It's quoted by a prophet who didn't want to prophesy well over Israel. Who might that be? Balaam. Turn with me to Numbers 24 quickly, the book of Numbers and chapter 24. Those of you that that, uh, just want to let me read it, that's fine. You just uh, keep it in Genesis. Look at Numbers 24. Now, this is Balaam. Balaam is hired by Balak, who is uh, the king of Moab, Moab being in like modern-day Jordan, And he's hired to curse the people of Israel. That in itself is an interesting thing because um, you think, well, there's nothing in that. You know, we don't believe in curses. We don't believe in all of, you know, the power of a person to, to hex another person. Well, these people did. Okay? Balaam was hired to do this. And Balaam, by the way, is known from ancient history. There are tablets that speak of his name. So he's, he's not uh, some, you know, ordinary guy. He's well-known uh, false prophet. And Balaam, in chapter 24, utters a prophecy, another prophecy. They all failed, by the way, as far as what Balak had hired him to do, because the Lord turned the prophecies into blessings. And that's what's going on here as well. Look at verse 9. Chapter 24, verse 9 of Numbers. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? God has put the words that Jacob uttered about Judah, and of course the figure of Judah, Jesus, into the mouth of Balaam, who's supposed to be cursing Israel, but instead is blessing Israel. And here is this prediction of this coming ruler. How extraordinary. Isn't that an amazing thing? Balaam quoting Jacob. 
and Jacob's prophecy of the last days. Just in case you want to, uh, you know, spiritualize or, or uh, forget about what Jacob said in Genesis, here's Numbers 24 repeating the same thing. Keep your uh, eyes still in Numbers 24 because there's a few more things about this passage that are worth bringing our attention to. Look, for example, at verse 14. Look at verse 14. Now, indeed, I'm going to my people. Come, I will advise you what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he speaks about this lion who shouldn't be roused. But he speaks about something else. And uh, I will read it first out of Numbers, and then we'll go back to verse 10 of Genesis 49. Look at verse 17. Look at verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob... A scepter, we'll look at that word in a second. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab. I'm sure Balak's really enjoying hearing this. Balak's the king of Moab. And destroy all the sons of tumult, the the evildoers and so on. Look also at verse 19. Out of Jacob, one, an individual, shall come who shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. So who is this lion? Who is this person who is uh, being requoted from Genesis 49? It is someone who will have the scepter in the last days and who will have dominion. Somebody who comes from Israel will have dominion over not just Israel, but also over Moab and by extension all peoples. And we'll see that now if you'll turn back to Genesis 49 with me. I think this is an extraordinary prophecy. Verse 10 of Genesis 49. The scepter, there it is. Do you know what a scepter is? You're American, so you may not know what a scepter is. Okay? I come from England and we have a royal family and, you know, and when you have these occasions of state when now the king puts his crown on and puts his garb on and all of that stuff, yes? And you have all these processions. And he has a mace. When he sits down, he has a ruler's staff that he holds in his right hand. Okay? In England, I believe it has the Hope Diamond on it, too. It's a pretty valuable thing. And he sits down, and that staff, or ruler's mace, or scepter, is the symbol of the fact that he is king, he reigns. So this scepter 
is going to be handed to this one who is predicted to be a lion, who's going to come in the last days, who's going to come from Judah. He is going to reign. Where's the emphasis? Is it on Jesus dying on the cross? Is it on Jesus being a deliverer? Not so much in the salvation sense, but it's the emphasis falls on Jesus as the king of the world. Folks, Jesus is not the king of the world right now. Some good Christian people, people I respect, Bible teachers who who tend to read the Bible in a non-literal fashion when it comes to prophecy, say that Jesus is on the throne now and he's ruling now. I have two things to say to that. The first, well, I have many things to say about that, but I'll confine it to two. The first thing I would say about that is that throne according to all of the prophecies, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is on earth, in Jerusalem. Now, I've never been to Jerusalem, but it's okay. I don't need to go go and look around to realize that I would, even if I was there and was allowed into all of the, the, uh, you know, special places, I would not find a throne there with Jesus sat upon it. He's not there. They have a prime minister, a premier, Netanyahu at the moment. Netanyahu, okay? He's got to go in order for Jesus to come. It will be a change of Government, when he comes. So Jesus, according to just, you know, simply fact, is not reigning in Jerusalem. Which should tell us that he's not reigning at all. In the sense of being a king. And people say, well, what? Hold on a minute, didn't Jesus say when he went? He said that all power in heaven and earth has been given unto me. Yes. He may have had all power given to him, and praise God that he does. So we serve a powerful savior. But that doesn't mean he's sitting on the throne right now. Just because you give him the power doesn't mean that you're giving the throne. Do you see? There are, there's a distinction there. Jesus exercises his power through the church, not directly from Jerusalem as its king. I said there were two things, though. The second thing that tells me that Jesus is not reigning now is that uh, simply, if he is, he's doing a terrible job. Have you seen the world? If Jesus is reigning now, my goodness, why would we? You, I, would you anticipate the kingdom? He's obviously doing a terrible job. What makes you think you'll do a better job in the future? It's ridiculous to hold that view, in my opinion. No, this will happen when? 
in the last days. There we go, you see. In uh, Psalm chapter 45, which is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, we have this verse in verse 6. says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Picking up, you see, on the prophecy of Jacob in Genesis 49. The scepter. When? Forever and ever. Once he starts to reign. I wonder when we think about Jesus, do we first of all think about him hanging on the cross? That's understandable. I'm not certainly not knocking that. Do we think about him doing good deeds? Healing people, his gracious words, his wonderful manner. Do we think about that? Again, that's a wonderful thing to think about. But as the Bible first presents him, he is the ruler of the world. And as I said, if we think about him first in that way, then we think about him and what he had to go through to save us. It highlights his wonder, his glory, his person, his love, and also what will become. I mean, such a king as that. Having someone like that as king who did that for us makes us anticipate all the more what he can do with this world when he comes back. Well, that's the first part of verse 10, the scepter not departing from Judah or a lawgiver. Again, the idea is uh, someone who rules from between his feet until this is the second part and the third uh, heading here of the sermon until Shiloh comes. How many people have the word Shiloh there in the second part of Genesis 49 verse 10? Can you look in your Bibles? Just put your hands up quickly. Okay, yeah, most of you have the word Shiloh there. Now, Shiloh is the Hebrew term. It's untranslated. And the reason that the translators of our Bibles have left it untranslated is because they wanted to focus on an individual. Okay, they know very well, they know Hebrew very well, and they know that uh, this is speaking of a person, but this is not his name. Okay? This is uh, a Hebrew word that's been left untranslated, but foc- focuses on an individual, and the word means uh, he to whom it belongs. He to whom it belongs. And the question that should come into our minds is, to whom what belongs? And the answer is wonderful. The whole thing, the whole world, humanity, the animal kingdom, 
the air, the elements, everything belongs to Jesus. The Apostle Paul in Colossians chapter 1 puts it this way, all things were created through him and for him, for him. Yes, you're right, by him is true, but in that text, for him. We forget that. We think that, you know, this world is, uh, you know, it's its own individual, its own, own thing. No, it belongs to Jesus. And again, I call you uh, to your remembrance that Jesus, who owns this world, had to die in it. The owner of the world had to die in his own world. How's that for condescension? How's that for humility? Isn't this extraordinary? Until one to whom it belongs comes. That's what we're waiting for. That's our hope. It's called the blessed hope by Paul in the book of Titus. Because this world belongs to Jesus, so you better know, you better acknowledge the fact that one day he's coming back to claim that which is rightfully his. And that includes you and I as long as we have Jesus as our personal Savior. The only way that you as a human being can be in this coming wondrous kingdom is if you are recognized by Jesus as being his. And how do you become his? It's not in this text. We will encounter it many times. It is by trusting that Jesus, the king, died for your sins and rose again according to the scriptures to give you hope of a resurrection and of entering into a Uh, an everlasting kingdom? Have you trusted Jesus as your savior? Have you confessed that you're a sinner in need of God's forgiveness? Because if you have, when Jesus returns, he looks at you. you, If we're here when this happens, he will look at you and you're his. He'll claim you for his own. You have a right to this kingdom. Psalm 2, which is a great psalm, a prophetic psalm. Sorry, I should have uh, kept my finger in there. In verse 8, it says this. This is God, the Father, speaking to the Son. Ask of me and I will give you the nations, not just Israel, the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth For your possession. 
The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until the one who, to whom it belongs comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. And the word translated people there is amim, and that means people of the world generally. The obedience of this world will one day, believe it or not, be towards Jesus Christ. This will be in the last days. Jesus will claim his inheritance. He will rule on this earth in accordance with a prophecy that was uttered 3,800 and so years ago. You say, when? When? I answer, I haven't got a clue. I don't know. Guys, I'm not a date setter. I don't know. But it will surely happen, possibly, I think maybe probably in our day. I think we're moving towards this very quickly. Therefore, the word that comes to us is a word of comfort and joy because we know where we're heading. We know the country we're going into, the kingdom that we'll be part of. And if you don't know that, then I invite you in the name of God who wrote this book, I invite you to turn your life, your soul, your sins over to Jesus Christ so that when he returns as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, he recognizes you and says, he, she, they're mine. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, send Jesus back. We pray, Lord, that this great event will, will happen soon. We know it will happen. And we look forward to it, Lord. Whether we die before he comes or whether we're here when Jesus returns, uh, Lord, the end result will be the same. If we know Jesus, then we will be there. Stepping out of this tumultuous and crazy world into a land of peace, a kingdom ruled by uh, the God who is love, Jesus Christ. Let us depart this, uh, this service, enter this new week, Lord, with that in our minds. In Jesus' name, amen.